0: Hello, this is episode 71 of the podcast called Blood and Rain. I'm your host, Arthur Dane. My gripe with the state of modern writing is that the stories they tell can take place anywhere. One of my writing mentors once told me the specific detail describes the general. And I've tried to pass on that maxim to anyone who's ever sought my counsel or happened to be in my proximity for that matter. If James Joyce were a young writer today, there could be no Dubliners. Walk through any modern city and you'll pass a Starbucks, Verizon, Whole Foods, and then some token chain that exists in your locality owned by an international conglomerate. Like the Roman forts in Gaul, In-N-Out Burger is a colonizing force that brings the values and morals of California behind it. Every city gets to keep its outer facade of clichy individuality, but underneath they're all the same, which makes writing about these places feel flat. Southern literature and the South more generally has been able to stave off the collectivizing force of modernity because it has always represented what the system is not. It is aristocratic, genteel, you know, so dark and unsettling and therefore unmarketable. One reads Faulkner and notes his characters would not look good on movie posters or selling insurance. My hopes and dreams for Paul and his writing were that when the last Southern Gothic author dies, it would be he who took up the mantle. His response was that the genre should die so that something new could replace it. I thought about this conversation for a long time and tried to reconcile my desire to return with his vision of renaissance. I believe that this collection of tales is that replacement. Paul writes Virginia itself as a character in his works literally and figuratively. It is a conquered land, civilized by Europeans, and as Paul himself has said on many occasions, Virginia is a microcosm for the rest of the nation. The Old Dominion is a place, whether we are talking about the Tidewater, the Blue Ridge Mountains, the James River, or Appalachia. The stories you read in this work are Virginian. The heroes and villains have no context outside their home, and while they may echo older tales from faraway lands, those stories, too, only make sense in their time and place. Virgil wrote the Aeneid as a founding myth to unite the Romans. Tolkien attempted the same with his Lord of the Rings. I see Paul trying to do the same thing here. Whether or not he succeeds in this this endeavor is not for me to say. Not for any living person to say. But one day in the far-flung future, if there is a young man sitting on the bank of the James with a fishing pole in one hand and a country squire's notebook in the other, there is no other barometer for success required. Forward by T.R. Hudson, a friend. From the source material of today's podcast, a fantastic collection of new short stories titled A Country Squire's Notebook, somewhat mythologizing and immortalizing the state of Virginia, the home of today's guest, its author, Paul Fahrenheit.
1: Thank you so much for being here today, Paul. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Dane. I I greatly appreciate that you took the time out of your busy schedule to bring me on to talk about, you know, the stuff I wrote and threw out into the ether, hoping people would like. Yeah, it's, it's, it's my pleasure. Man. Um, you know, our, uh, I think, you know, the most
0: mutual friend we have is uh, another than Jay Burton, and another Virginian. And um, after him and I recorded a couple of times, he said, I think, uh, you know, with your writing background, this is a great guy to have on your podcast. Uh, and I was already familiar with you uh, because you're somewhat of a uh, a frequent flyer in the in the DR. Uh, so I was I was happy to was happy at the prospect, and I had no idea you had uh, written a book until that time.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 recent. You know, the American Mythos has been something I've been talking about since I first you know burst onto the scene at last year's Nashville event. Um, I was really a nobody before then, but I kind of became a somebody really quick after that Nashville event. Um, And I I was kind of, I was talking about the the germ of this idea since then. Um, It has since grown, and I think it's stopped growing, but it has since grown into about a whole mythos I have planned out and like, I know all of it. It's all in my head. I have all the plots. I have all the characters. I know what it's going to look like. I just need to, you know, I just need to have the time to justify to sit down and just vomit all of it onto the paper and then arrange it after I do that into something that looks semi-decent, but a country squires notebook was actually completely unplanned um, in the grand scheme of things. So it kind of came about as a, result of necessity um, Dan Baltic, who is uh, another good writer he's his his novel is 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 a really horny novel, Nut and he'll say that himself that's part of the marketing. Um, it's good. It's just you know, it's that but um but you know he said once on Twitter and he's 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 a really good poster. he said once on Twitter he said um, the best writing advice I ever got was from my landlord who said, pay rent or I'm going to call the cops. And so I took that writing advice to heart. And, um, when I was uh, fired from my job earlier this year for stupid reasons, um, I had to pay my rent. And so I, you know, sat down and, you know, thought up these six short stories that were kind of like little keystone pieces of much larger stories that I already had planned and wrote them out and and you know talked to tr about it and i did manage to pay my rent and now i'm doing a lot better compared to that time and i have this first body of work to my name
0: yeah it's uh it, it sounds like it was certainly was born out of a crucible and you're sort of rushed into, into putting something out before you had ever planned which is probably for the best um because, you know, there's of all, of all people to quote George R. R. Martin, who, to be fair, has created a very extensive mythos that I actually admire. It's just his execution of actual storytelling I despise. Um, he's talked about a lot of writers being architects versus gardeners, and these long term sort of grand strategists of writing tend not to produce things until much later, himself included, for that matter. Um, so I'm glad that there was that jolt, and, you know, while i don't wish that kind of crucible of needing to pay rent on anybody it certainly has produced some incredible feats of creative work you know in the past two centuries so um and i was uh, to be honest i was a bit upset when i realized there's only a, a thing of short stories i hadn't looked into it i hadn't um well, i hadn't opened the first page um, as however you can say that in a in an equivalent for an ebook. um But when Jay Burton told me about it, I was hoping it was like this entire book. When I heard the podcast that you two did together uh, talking about this briefly, um, I heard it was short stories. It was uh, somewhat perturbed, but uh, I'm eagerly waiting to see the entire uh, mythos unfold. There's a lot of places uh, that I'd like to, that I could start in. But before we dive into uh, the novel itself, or the the collection of short stories itself, um, something I'm having to sort of consistently do um, is kind of reintroduce the figures of the DR to a different audience, Uh, because I don't really come from that neck of the woods, I'm kind of saying hi to everyone now, Uh, but I come from a different uh, audience that's based on Instagram, so you could just sort of like briefly state how you got into sort of Twitter slash content creation game um, and where you're at now and where you plan to be going with that.
1: Well, I mean, I I got involved in sort of, I guess you could say nascent dissident politics uh, immediately after the conclusion of Gamergate in uh, 2015, when I started watching Sargon for the first time, I was, I think, 15 years old. Um, So this has basically been my entire adult life since, you know, since, I was in high school. I've been just consuming dissident content and learning more and reading stuff and all that. Um, jumped around the shop a little bit. Ended up settling uh, in the in the you know universe of academic agent. Um, had had the dreams, ambitions, goals of one day becoming the people that I would listen to on the on the podcast and all that. Um, the U.S. Skildings event came around and I saw my chance, i submitted a, uh, submitted a topic to speak about Francis Parker, Yaki and Imperium and Oswald Spangler's decline of the West and all that. Um, and I did, and, you know, you know, people still tell me about the speech. So I'm guessing it was, it was pretty good. Um, but, um, but you know, um, uh, I, I, from there, I've just been content creating, man. I don't really have a YouTube. I have one video on uh on youtube that i ever made and it's about you know 20 minutes long and it's me talking about one spangler essay and it will remain the only video on youtube uh that i ever make i'm not a video content guy um i write on my Substack. in theory um i uh do a lot of twitter spaces i like them because they're kind of like a ephemeral radio show it's like you have to be there to enjoy it i like how it's not recorded and you can't go back and listen to it um, which makes it kind of the more meaningful because it's just it, it just vanishes once you're done with it um, and only people's memory of it remain. Um, but another thing I do is I do a lot of IRL meetups. Um, I challenge you to find a single person in the American DR uh, that I have not met in person. Um, I have met most everyone in person uh, that I can and I, I like to meet as many other people as I can copy that yeah that's uh i I heard about the the event going on this
0: year and that's certainly something i wanted to uh wanted to attend and it's not too far away hop skip and jump away from chicago where i'm currently staying but uh
1: preparing for a tournament
0: uh, to fight in the summer is kind of taking the the priority i'm also getting married so (laughs)
1: that's completely reasonable um jay burden got it over with quick so he could so he could um uh, get to the u.s event (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we can hang out with his
0: dr buddies
1: yeah, yeah basically yeah uh, it's definitely something
0: i'm hoping uh, to be in attendance uh next year um as far as uh, irl meetups go i keep hearing about the uh, chicago dr and it looks like it might be making
1: contact. oh yeah they're all real good friends of mine i you know chicago is one of my favorite towns yeah it's uh
0: you and i briefly spoke about this on a call we had the other day like it's um when I first got here, it's a city that you know, like any any AFF guy uh, listening to this right now is going to be hearing this for the millionth time. But when I first got here, I uh, I didn't quite understand Chicago. It was like none of this makes sense. Like I don't I don't understand this place. Like I can I can cut down to the essence of San Francisco and the gap of a split second. The same thing with New York. The same thing with London. Um, all the places i we lived. Um, Places where extended family live. You know, at one point in Murcia, Spain, um, Edinburgh. When I performed there, in the Edinburgh French Festival a long time ago. Now, uh, when I got to Chicago, I'm like, this doesn't make sense. Like, neighborhood to neighborhood, there's very little common thread. I'm standing in a in a park with a fountain that feels like Paris, just viscerally. I'm staring ahead at the Congress Hotel. It reminds me of Ghirardelli Square in San Francisco. I'm looking to my right, and it looks like Central Park West. Like. What is this place? <laughs> <It's> <laughs> I, like, I was this
1: place made against its will. Like, what is this? Chicago is nature's metropolis. Chicago is, um, and you know, I'm I'm gonna spend this show that's ostensibly to talk about my book, talking about another book written by someone else that I would highly recommend you and everyone else to read, and it's called Nature's Metropolis, and it's by a historian by the name of William Cronin. All right, the, the book is about the foundation and the building and the construction and the ecological history of the construction of Chicago and how the ecology of that area changed as things like the CME were invented, as all the railroads were, were built leading to Chicago. And he, he makes the point that, you know, Chicago was very much purposefully built to be the center of American commercial interests. It is on geographically the best place to put a city on the planet. Um, it is at the center of more miles of inland navigable waterway than the rest of the world combined. Um, um, you know, more, more goods flow through Chicago than I think any other city on the planet. Um, and, and basically the whole thing is, is that, is that Chicago is moving away from these, from these quantitative facts, Chicago is the platonic ideal of the American city, right? It is, it is, it's the one city where if you're driving up to it, it just kind of, you start seeing it in the distance and it just keeps growing bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, the closer you get to it. And it's the one of the only major metropolitans that you can really get a good view of, um, coming towards it from the west if you go west to east along um i uh, i forget which interstate that is but if you go west to east along that interstate coming up towards chicago that's where you get the best view of it um new york city you're kind of like going through a whole bunch of like tight suburban sprawl and then you go through a tunnel and then whoop, it's right there in your face because that's new york city new york City's all up in your face um just all at once new york Um, city is violence in every single direction
0: not physical violence just in terms of presence
1: yeah i hate it i can't stand it i i i I cannot stand going to new york Um, i've been to new york many times and i i hate it every single time i want to get out as soon as possible (laughs) um san francisco is is kind of like it seems like a um, uh, it seems like a sinking paradise is the best way to describe it from my outsider's perspective, like yeah. a uh, a tarnish. Say again. How fitting. Yeah, yeah a, a tarnishing sort of white city. Um, fucking uh, L.A. is just sprawl. L.A. is like this monstrosity that just simply should not be. Um, I mean. Uh, uh, Dallas, Dallas and, and Houston just kind of feel endless. Uh, they feel, they feel like a, um, they, they just don't feel like they're, they're they feel like planes that everyone decided to concentrate buildings in. Um, that's, that's how Dallas and Houston feel. Um, I could get into, I could get into like, um, I could get into how I feel about Southern cities. I really like Southern cities and I hate, tend to hate other cities, but Chicago Unlike New York City, where the skyscrapers are kind of forcing themselves down your, their, down your throat, like all of the buildings seem like they're peering down at you at every second. Chicago, it just feels more open. It feels like a city. Sure, it feels like it's a real place with like a beginning and an end, but it feels open. It feels like the buildings are kind of like giants that have planted their feet in the ground, and they're staring up at the sky. And they don't really give a shit about you because they're they're busy placing their mind on bigger and better things. Um, you know, what's the, the there's the poem by Carl Sandburg, Hog Butcher of the World, uh, which is kind of like the um uh, the single poem that describes Chicago. But, you know, Chicago is just is it's the mishmash city of the mishmash nation i.e everything great about every other city in the united states can be found in chicago and everything terrible about every other city in the united states can be found in chicago um that's kind of that forgive me the long screed but i i i really do love chicago
0: well i'm i'm beginning to uh, to, to be fair the first time i really saw it uh, in spring um my soon to fiance picked a wonderful route for me to see it you know, up close the first time. And I was blown away. Right? Having, having lived in pretty much every expensive city in the world, like yeah, SF, New York, London, um, it had qualities of all of those, like you mentioned before, um, but something that was still uniquely Chicago. In the area around the Tribune Tower, like there's something eerily familiar. You mentioned New York City, you know, uh, Cody Browning in the comments and then the chat he says, A good comment you had that NYC, uh, the skyscrapers impose themselves on you. That's accurate. That is wholeheartedly accurate. Um, And when I was living there, there was George Bagby said something about um, on Jay Burden's podcast, saying, I want people to take the Mormons a bit more seriously because I don't think Joseph Smith was listening to the Holy Spirit, but he was listening to something. and my most recent stream before this one, I was talking, it was quite literally in the middle of the night at a gym because I, I couldn't uh, fix right. So naturally, I go <laughs> go to the gym and I hit the bag and I'm like, you know, I'm going to do a stream about things that are that have been in my mind. you yeah. um, know. And I felt this, uh, it's almost like this, what could only be classified from my understanding is like a Nietzschean spirit tied to these buildings just goading you into striving for like this far more alluring in some ways than the actual truth of hierarchy and God. Um, But it's like a, it's an imposter. It's deeply attractive. It's deeply aggressive. Um, And that's something that I felt briefly in Chicago, but I felt in New York in spades. And when I lived there, I was like, this is a wonderful place to disappear because no one's looking at you because everyone's looking somewhere else. And this energy is everywhere. And I can marinate on that in much different ways than the people were trying to just get from point A to point B. So there's this, you know, New York's a wonderful place to disappear and it's a wonderful place to descend into madness. And I almost did, um, but not to get into, and you know, my father's a New Yorker and a good friend of mine the Saxon Cross, who's from Louisiana. When him and I, you know, started rubbing shoulders on Instagram, I would write about San Francisco and New York. And he'd say, I love your takes on America because they're so opposite to mine coming from a, such an agrarian life. Um, you know, there's a quote saying, I need to see the world, or well, New York is the world. And in some instances, what you say about Chicago, I certainly see in New York. It's just, uh, it's a lot more aggressive, and it's a lot more erratic. And if you don't know why you're there, you will get overrun. Whereas in Chicago, like you said, where they put these buildings, you, there's actually enough space to see them and experience them. Like even Soldier Field, a football stadium, is near museums. It's like much more akin to, to Rome, for that matter, the way it was set up. Uh, We're not,
1: we're we're not here to talk about a Southern state. Well, you know, (laughs) I mean, I mean, this is, all of my stories are like, you know, sort of regional worships and, 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 you know, I can, I could talk about, dude, I've been all across these United States. I've never left the country, but I, I've been all across these, these States United. And, and I've, I can, I can tell you each place had a different field uh, feel. And, you know, I guess to kind of wrap a bow on Chicago, like it's, If you had to pick a single city in the United States that would make sense to be the capital of the United States, it would be Chicago. Chicago is the one city that makes sense to be the capital of the United States. That's all I have to say.
0: I actually buy that. I I, I actually buy that. I don't buy that the case in D.C., of course, as they made it to be. New York just doesn't have the, the structure for it. It's just we're going to build in every which direction for better or for worse. Certainly not going to be the west coast. Um, you know Chicago with that centrality much like Madrid and then the waterway. I buy that. And for not just those reasons but many others. But I want to hear your take on on southern cities because you know the more southerners I get to know the more I'm beginning to like scrape the surface of understanding the way they hold their homeland in regard the way they view it, the way they experience it. I've never been to a Southern city with the exception of, I was outside Nashville for a trade show, but didn't get to experience Nashville it. And Austin, 10 days, which is like it's like, Austin, it's like an extension of San Francisco at this point,
1: but yeah, yeah it's just nashville nashville just doesn't count it's it's like it's like a tourist it's like it's like las vegas nashville's a city right now like las vegas is a city maybe it once was a city but not really anymore now you want a southern city memphis that's your town baby you know memphis memphis is one of the grimiest cities on earth right up there with new orleans it is about three blocks of memphis that are really nice and the rest of the city is just just man it's just like they call it Memphrica for a reason um, like the police doesn't even patrol beyond those three blocks, which also just so happened to be the whitest blocks where the old money, white people live. Um, and Memphis has always been that way, man. You know, the thing about Southern cities is it's kind of an oxymoron Southern cities because the South doesn't really have cities. Um, someone once told me that there is no such thing as a sort of Yankee or a Northerner. There are only like people from cities up there. Like the, y'all don't really tend to have an idea of statehood, even like people, even people from upstate New York don't really have an idea of, and a pride of statehood. It's more of like, it's more of like the city or the town you're from, you know, it, 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 in the South, it's, it's a lot different. There is a sort of pride in statehood, you know, even if they're the 49th or 50th worth states in the nation, there's still like a pride in that statehood, like, you know, um, everyone will say yes. I'm from Alabama, or I'm from Tennessee, or you know, I'm from Virginia or South Carolina or something like that. You know, and and it's because the cities aren't the cities aren't the center point of the state. They just kind of they kind of happen to be the slightly larger towns that got a little bit up jumped. Um, that just happened to be where the politicians all gather. But for the most part. The strength of the South is outside of its cities, is in its is in its rural locales, its small towns, its you know hamlets and mansions and estates and historical sites. That's that's the South, and it, it's it's kind of like it's kind of like how you'd imagine you would sort of imagine a feudal Europe to be that way. Now the reality of Europe is it's very heavily city dominated, but um, but I mean the thing is like southern cities don't really feel like cities. They just kind of feel like, um, like overgrown towns. And some of them, some of them are starting to flip the other way. You know, I mean, uh, Atlanta, for example, is just, it's just, it's just a monstrosity. I wish I could nuke the entirety of North Georgia. Um, but apparently, apparently it's always been that way. Um, Charlotte sucks. Raleigh is getting bad. Um, you know the whole research triangle is just is just getting bad. Uh, Nashville, as I mentioned earlier, Knoxville, and all of eastern Tennessee is filling up with every kind of shit lib you can imagine. Um, you know, Huntsville. Huntsville is pretty nice, but it, once again, lots of shit libs. Uh, Birmingham, Alabama, is actually is actually getting pretty uh, pretty nice. Um, but for the most part, the rest of the cities in the South are just kind of like places where, you know, you'll find. let's just say you'll find the local fauna the South is known for in large numbers, uh, within, uh, within many Southern cities that aren't like explicitly known for anything else. New Orleans doesn't count. New Orleans isn't a Southern city. New Orleans is New Orleans. Um, but I mean, good examples. I think the best examples of Southern cities that you might find are like, let's say Charleston. Charleston is just like a beautiful jewel uh, on the coast of South Carolina, Savannah is very similar. Savannah is just kind of an extension of Charleston. Um, you know, uh, um, I like Wilmington, North Carolina, quite a bit. Uh, Richmond, and well, maybe it was written. No, not Richmond anymore. Very sadly, unfortunately, Richmond kind of feels like an open wound right now. It feels like it's exsanguinated itself of its southernness with the uh, symbolic act of destroying Monument Avenue, which is where all the confederate statues were lined up and now richmond just just feels empty it feels like it's nothing it feels like it was once something and then it killed what made itself separate um in the meantime i have to recommend lynchburg if you want to get an idea of what richmond used to feel like um but i mean i mean you know at the, and that's the other thing too like like there's more than one south you know When I say the South, most people think of the Confederate States. But, you know, if if you're from let's say if you're from Virginia, once the Yankees leave the room to the to the Alabamans, you're the Yankee, (laughs) you know, Uh, like like there's there's the upper South, like Virginia, Tennessee, Arkansas, who are, you know, very heavily filled with Scots, Irish hill people sort of they don't that you don't find as many plantations up there, as many, you know, residual traces of the plantation economic system. You go down, um, you've got the Carolinas, you know, North Carolina, South Carolina, Um, the deep, the deep South starts at about Georgia, Um, you know, Georgia, uh, I guess you could say South Carolina too, but Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, Northern Florida, northern louisiana that's all like the deep south and and that's like that's a whole different feeling place than like let's say tennessee or somewhere like that just in, in terms of geography and in terms of people um so that that's i guess i guess in a nutshell like that's the thing like the south in in really about its cities um its cities are kind of like tacked on it's the, the south is about what's outside the cities and what's surrounding them
0: yeah, and I think that's honestly the assumption that most people would make. I mean, being a being a born and bred West Coaster, you know, we think about, I mean, San Francisco, we think about other cities in the West Coast. And we think about New York. We don't even think about Chicago. Like, I honestly kept forgetting that Chicago exists. It's just an affliction of <laughs> being from the Bay Area. We were not thinking about any any of the cities that you just mentioned. Um, being a history buff growing up, for me, it's a little bit of a different case, Um you know, I read pretty consistently that both pre-Civil War and post-Civil War Charleston, if you want to try to get the South in one city and everything that it stands for, is a good place to go. Um, Savannah, same thing. It was those two cities that you mentioned. Um, if you're trying to feel that ethos, you're trying to feel what remains in that spirit. Those are the places to go. And you know, the parallels between England and the South are. Uh, undeniable right just just that bit you said about there are many different souths as soon as the yankees leave the room the, the virginians the alabamans and now the yankees um you know that's that's the case with north versus south in uh, the united kingdom right if, if any, anything north of, of oxford is basically the north when you get to the north like you're a bastard scouser or you're a manky boy or you're a geordie and all this it's like yeah um <laughs> We're proud to be English, but we also think the greatest scoundrels in the entire world just happen to be, you know, 30 miles down the road. Uh, <laughs> it's it's hilarious to think about. Uh, in-group preference is a real thing. Tribalism is a real thing, and it's undeniable. So it, maybe not in other places, but especially in the extension of the Anglosphere and you know adjacent Scotch-Irish uh, populations that cross the Atlantic, um, it is a world I am trying to understand, uh, increasingly so. Having finished my formative years in England uh, for drama school then about the age of 19, I got a grasp of what makes England England. Um, but you know, to, again, to, to highlight some of the words of my friend the Saxon Cross, he says what he's really concerned about of Southern culture is what people are attributing Southern culture, culture Uh, to is a pop version of Southern culture, you know, it's like old country music versus I don't know, uh, Laney Wilson, you know, and uh, Luke Bryan, all these people, Um, it's not really the same kind of culture, it's not the fullness of culture, it's very much reminiscent of America before and after the admin, before and after pop art, you know, these are things that are packaged for people to understand as quickly as possible so they can buy in it is a monetary exchange that people are after, which is why they're spoon feeding and we're capable of less and less and less veneration and less and less understanding. And it's one of the biggest tragedies of this country, not, not only in the South. Um, but for whatever reason, the literature of the South has remained untouched in the sense that it hasn't had to conform modernity, it hasn't been able to ruin it. like. Uh, T.R. Hudson said in the forward that he wrote for your book, um, I have to say, I mean, throughout, uh, it felt very Faulkner. If, if I had to pick one 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 influence that I'd sort of peggy with, it is indeed Faulkner. Uh, and then honestly, I don't think you would be too upset with, uh, with that
1: comparison. I mean, you know, Faulkner is Southern literature and Southern literature is Faulkner. It, it all just comes back to him like the like a big plantation house at the center of an estate. Like like that's you know, that is Faulkner for Southern writing. Everyone after him is trying to be him and everyone before him, you know, just didn't seem to, to reach his level. Like like that's that's what it is.
0: Yeah, and the, the only piece I've read by Faulkner, I've, I haven't read a full novel by him, but only um, a collection of stories, Night's Gambit, right? But you get that sense, the way he structures his prose, in some senses, it's it's an overload, right? So, and, you know, Hemingway had a lot of feuds with people, maybe a bit more famously, this feud with George Bernard Shaw, um, but also, you know, little war of words with uh, William Faulkner, and Faulkner, What he criticized Hemingway for was his minimalistic use of language. Uh, And Hemingway basically scoffed at that, saying, oh, you think making people feel with writing has to do with how big the words are using. And, you know, I don't really think anyone's right in that debate, to be honest. Um, And I constantly compare many people who listen to this podcast. have seen my comparisons of Fitzgerald versus Hemingway. You know, they're very different, although they're both vital to understanding the wave of modernism. Um, Fitzgerald painted. He used as many words as he needed to. In some ways, he was akin to Virginia Woolf in that regard. It almost was fluttery, but it had a masculine overtone to, to it. It was this agonizing, alluring painting of prose. And Hemingway was trying to, it's like he was crafting a katana. He was folding steel as tightly as possible to be as precise and as impactful as possible. Um but what what's interesting with Faulkner is it's almost an overload with his prose. Um
1: oh yeah, he's uh he's shooting you with buckshot like he is <laughs> he is he is just peppering you with everything cuz you have to understand it right like the the whole reason southern literature as a genre exists is uh, number 1 uh, for Southerners to kind of sit there and figure out why the hell they're different from everyone else in this country, and number two, uh, to sell pornography to uh, Northern audiences because uh Faulkner Faulkner did a lot of both, um, but basically basically you know yeah like being being born in the South is is kind of kind of like Faulkner's prose. It's an overwhelming thing. You know, I was born in Virginia, which is the northernmost state in the south. It was the it was the capital of the Confederacy. Um, arguably, it is the most reconstructed state in the south. Um, it is the least like its former self prior to the Civil War, I think, of any state, um, except except for the area around Lynchburg, Virginia. Um, that's why I recommend it. If you want to see what old Virginia looks like, the best thing you're going to get is Lynchburg. Um uh, aptly named, by the way, uh, not named after the judge, named after his brother, uh, the Quaker merchant. But the thing is, the thing is that, um, you know, being being born in the South is you're brought up, number one, with a tradition, which most of most of people who are outside of the South don't even really have in the first place, because America's about leaving those things behind um, in favor of the new ones we got here you know, the South, we were, we're, we're a very backward looking people. Most of the time, you know, we're mostly because, you know, I don't want to say we're sore losers, but we're, we're sitting there basically with this massive fucking war, the largest war in the 19th century. Um, it happened in our backyard. It happened right next to where we grew up. So of course we're going to s- spend a lot of our time thinking about it because it was literally right there in front of us. Like I grew up not 20 minutes from the bull run battlefield Man- manassas they're they're going to get mad at me the manassas battlefield um and um uh, you know but my family would take me up to gettysburg and to sharpsburg and to, you know all of these great sort of civil war battlefields that were not two hours drive from my house growing up um and you know you're kind of sit there so you're you're you're, you're left there to kind of wonder So we had this cause we believed in, or we had this thing that we fought for and we lost and were then subsequently conquered and occupied. Um, And we're still reeling from the consequences of that. That's kind of, that's kind of what the the whole premise of Southern literature in the first place is it's, you know, John David Ebert, who's another writer once called it, um, and he's not a Southern writer, but he, he once called it fighting the civil war by other means, basically. Um, and, and it's just kind of coming to terms with what we are, why we are, why we were a separate nation at one point, and how much of our sins are really sins and how much of our sins are our fault or how much of our sins are someone else's fault. Um, and really, you know, it's kind of like you're, you're brought up with this sort of ideal, this gone with the wind, or I guess this first 30 minutes of gone with the wind ideal of what the South is and was um contrasted with the reality which is like deliverance basically in some places and you know deliverance is very purposely meant to smear us but you know it is what it is uh it most i've certainly seen shacks uh in my time that look like that um but you know it it really is it's just this difficulty in reconciling um this sort of great military tradition with this tradition of defeat with this you know being a part of the founding bones of the country, and yet you're the most disgraced part of the country that the rest of the country is kind of ashamed of, and and you know you're you're kind of left to sort it all out, and it's it's really big problems for you know young people growing up to sort out. Maybe that's why Southerners hunt and fish all the time because they don't want to think about the problems of what it is to be a Southerner. And you know, people like Faulkner come along and just kind of kind of explore every single aspect. And of all of his novels, you know, he explores it and that's kind of, that's all that Southern literature really exists to do is to is to kind of answer this big question as to what is the South and why are we different from the rest of America?
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, in, in terms of parallels to England, I make this joke um, you know, with my, my British friends all the time, is that, and this is something I felt while I essentially wrapped up growing up in England. No matter where I went, no matter what time of the day, um, everything—the way I described it back then, and, and in some ways still do now—is that everything was bathed in twilight. Like, everything just felt somberly. Even if it was happy, it was somber. Like even if it was, you know, festive, it was still somber. Um, and you know, speaking to you know, again, the Saxon cross and letters from the ruins and other. Um, other creators in my neck of the woods um, who can speak on it either having blood of anglos or having grown up in england they say that's pretty accurate you look at the the poem of england the Wanderer, paradise lost i mean even i was preparing for a trial for a fight team and i had deactivated my instagram but i had an aesthetics page at the time so i posted uh, my thoughts there uh, so basically defeated the purpose of not having my instagram And it keeps me up at night thinking that Shakespeare only wrote tragedies and comedies as as if life could only be a tragedy or a joke. Um, Which is why I tend to gravitate towards his two plays where he really broke his rules in Troilus and Cressida and and Cymbeline. Um, But that is sort of bathed everywhere. Like even when, when England's up, they're still somber. When they're down, they're somber and i get that feeling whenever i read well not really whenever i read i read faulkner once and i've got a hint of that in your work but less so probably because of the goal of your work in general that T.R. hasn't stated Is this looming looming darkness everywhere this quality of dusk that seems to be unavoidable no matter how much you fish no matter how much you hunt Uh, is that in your opinion, is that what it means to be Southern Gothic? Like, where does that term Southern Gothic in particular come from? In your opinion?
1: Well, I mean, you know, the Southern Gothic is kind of, is kind of meant to, you know, it starts with Edgar Allan Poe and that sort of romanticist era. Um, it's, it's, it's just this, this sort of idea that like, you know, the South is this, it, it kind of similar to like You know, Venice has always been sinking since it was founded. It's this, it's this idea that like we've created this ephemeral civilization that we all know is gonna die one day. Um, and you can either and it's it, you know, it's a really Catholic sentiment. What's what's strange about the South is one of the you know, the South is a land of paradoxes. The South is the most biblically Protestant Christian part of the country as of right now. Um, but in terms of sentiment, it is the most Catholic sentiment card of the country in terms of hierarchy, in terms of, you know, even it's like even it's sort of ethical, in terms of its like classical tradition, you know, the South is very sort of Mediterranean in that regard, even in our architecture., um, you see the sort of Jeffersonian columns and domes, which are just classical revival, my favorite style, by the way. Um, but yeah, it, it's like this idea that we founded this civilization, Um, Based on these sort of like principles, based on this really significant tradition, this sort of planter cast, we know it's going to collapse into dust one day and it's going to fall. And you can either be you can either be the sort of holy fool who doesn't care about it and just lives to have fun or you can be consumed by it and, you know, and like not really be able to reconcile it or or, you know be somber about it. And, and, and Faulkner writes both characters. I mean, um, and you see both characters in real life. Me personally, I'm trying to pull the South out of that um, and towards something else because what we're seeing right now, and this is why I'm writing is just cause, just cause basically the way things are right now, all of the old disputes and problems of America have been thrown out the fucking window um given the uh, current political system that we're inhabiting and now we're looking at okay what survived the flood of the coming age of aquarius what what has kept its head above water thus far the south is one of those things you know despite all the transplants that move down here you know it's funny the transplants become southern the longer they stay here they adopt the accents they start learning the culture um it, it's funny how that happens the transplants they come here and they they southernize over time. Same thing doesn't happen when Southerners go North. Um, It does happen a little bit, but not, not to the extent that like they, it happens when they come here. Um, You know, the South is, is growing exponentially economically. Its culture is still very strong. Um, It's got one of the only living art scenes in the United States. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of, kind of wrap it all up, but basically the South is, the South is, it's the, one of the only places in America that kind of has the foundations um, in order to build something built to last. Because, you know, the, the the sort of New England northern alternative proposition of what an America is, is, you know, purposefully meant to be impermanent because building things to last is what aristocrats do. And they have this very Protestant sort of sensibility or not even some this like reformed sensibility that you perpetually break down and remake yourself better and better and better and better. You know, people talk about Nietzsche a lot. Well, Nietzsche got some of his most profound inspiration from the new England transcendentalists. Like Nietzsche loved Thoreau. Uh, he loved Emerson too. And he read all of them. And that's kind of, that's one of the big bases for his sort of, for his sort of Nietzschean, um, perpetual striving set of ethics. You know, it comes from that New England. The problem with that is, is it's like, is it's like you're burning yourself out like a firework. You know, yeah, it's really impressive, but it just ceases to be once the show is over. um The South never sought to be that impressive. It just, it sought to build things to last and to, and to do all of that. And I mean, I don't know. I, I've completely forgot like the question or the prompt I was answering. I got my conversate my own my own incessant need for talking carried me away. Uh, no, I, I like
0: facilitating that quite a bit because people's tangent brains typically bring up things that I like to discuss. So um, yeah, that's a pretty interesting thought because when people, equip, uh, when people think about the, the founding of this nation, right? Um, you know, they're not even really thinking about the South in its entirety. They're not thinking about Georgia. You know, 9 out of 10 people wouldn't really be able to recollect the fact of how involved the Spanish were in assisting the, the, the American Revolution in the Southern Front. Like, that's something that, yeah, it's probably going to get forgotten. In a lot of ways, people aren't thinking about New York either. Um, New York was kind of sidelined by 100-plus ships in, in, in the harbor. So when people are thinking about the founding of this nation, they're thinking about the mid-Atlantic region more Particularly uh, Virginia, and they're thinking about New England. They're thinking about Connecticut. They're thinking about Massachusetts. Um, they're thinking about Plymouth Rock. They're thinking about Puritanism. Um, those Washington are the and two. Concord,
1: Philadelphia, all those other places. Absolutely,
0: yeah. They're they're thinking about yeah, Continental Congress. Um, you know, the powerhouses of which really came from Virginia, the exception of John Adams. Um, but you know, some people. You, know, you you have to call John Adams a powerhouse, whether you like uh, Federalist politics or not. Um, and you know, with the the invention of like the WASP class, sort of the intermarrying of you know Southern elites and New Englander elites, uh, it's clearly like, it kind of reflects what you just said that people will Southernize if they go to the South, but Southerners don't Northernize when they move elsewhere. It just doesn't happen. And that's probably due to the aforementioned affinity for continuity they have. Maybe at this point, it's been enough time, inherently. Um, that energy are speaking of a blank slate. You know, it's very lock. You know, we're going to build something. We're going to tear it down. We're going to do it again even better. That's the affliction that we mentioned before of New York. I mean, the original uh, Penn Station is a masterpiece. And they tore it down from Madison Square Garden like it's just it's a joke it's it's a disgrace <laughs> they destroyed some of the most gorgeous stone towers and replaced them with steel and glass monstrosities like you can new can be wrong um as an aside some of the the systems that we use in, in anti-fridal fitness are old you'd think that science has like this cutting edge you know new way to get stronger and people are are doing new things just because they're new and they're less effective like that's that's a folly of humanity that's pretty consistent that we think new is this next step but oftentimes it can be a pitfall um what strikes me as almost somewhat of a white pill amidst like all this (laughs) this dusk is the fact that the south can endure Inherently, as you're saying, the way they sort of organize themselves for continuity and, and building things to last—that humility actually reflects the state of the United States before its entrance into the world stage. Um, I spoke on a previous podcast, or I was a guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast. That the term that we in the martial arts community love so much, called kaizen, where it's like you're—it's like the sustainable, it's quote-unquote sustainable development, which is like a dirty term now thanks to Klaus Schwab, but. Um, It's like I am taking on more additions to my training that are sustainable, and I'll be able to add on them over time. I'm supposed to overloading myself. Um, That term kaizen was actually learned from the Americans. That didn't originate in Japan. Um, So if we remove, you know, and everyone has a debate about how much you have to remove from America's folly america's line of mistakes in the name of progress like how much time you need to remove some people would say 60 years some people would say 100 years it doesn't really matter when it gets down to it the south seems to possess something that is reminiscent of old america not just the south and its ideal and that can you can sort of go back to that and pick up where you left off and then actually break through the next threshold that you see that southerners are afflicted by that originates with the civil war. And that's what strikes me about the book itself, right? You're very clearly as mentioned in the very beginning, you're like, you're mythologizing Virginia to, to an, another level, basically, because you do have a founding myth as a state, but it's like, you're, you're setting out in, in this work, I would say on the roads to success. Cause I'm not going to say oh, you did it like it's done. You know, you've, you you have ushered in the next era of Southern Plot. I'm not saying that because there's quite a bit of time to go. And I, I sure as hell hope you have a hell of a lot more to write. Oh, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, it's, it's funny. We've, we've, we've spent 50 minutes talking about basically everything other than this book.
0: <laughs> that, that's, that's the way it's a zero in, right? A lot of people would say you're going on a, a series of tangents. No, I'm eliminating everything else that's unnecessary so we can actually get into a – discussion about the book that is uninterrupted and deepens to the point of getting to the questions that need yep. to
1: be asked. Plus, plus we got a bunch of like previous conversation things we can reference while I'm talking about the book. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And
0: that that quality where you, were you told T.R. Hudson, no, I don't want to pick up where Faulkner left off. I want that all to die. Because that is rooted in the affliction of the Civil War, but there is a South before the Civil War, and that can be my bedrock, so to speak. That comes through in the writing. It's a hell of a lot brighter than any other piece of you know Southern literature or reference to the South that I've ever seen. You speak you speak on that a bit more.
1: Yeah, I mean you know. <sighs> This is something that actually, you know, the postmodern Southern writers, Walker Percy being the primary example, started on. Um, Walker Percy wrote in one of his essays that the Southerners of, you know, the Southerners of, he was writing in the 80s, like the Southerners of today have a lot more in common with their ancestors in 1820 than they do in 1920. And quite frankly, I think the 21st century is just going to be almost, I don't want to say a total repeat, but almost a total repeat Of the 19th century, it's going to look a lot more like that. I'm not saying there's going to be a second civil war or something, but yeah, man, you know, the civil war is just kind of, it's kind of this thing that like basically ruined the fun party that was the South before the civil war. The South was just this total, like, like you you read about, you know, Southern hospitality and shit like, like there are stories of vagabonds who would go from Washington DC down to like new Orleans and they never had to pay for an inn they would just knock on random people's houses and they'd be put up as though they were honored guests and fed all of this, like, you know, pheasant and Turkey and, and, and any sort of wild. And it was just one big massive party and like duels were fought and, you know, drink was spilled everywhere. And, and, you know, affairs of honor and romance and intrigue and all of that, you know, and part of that may be mythologized, but part of that is real. And it's kind of that spirit, you know, my profile picture my profile picture is of William Byrd the second. All right. William Byrd II is a figure most people don't know in American history. And he's kind of this like this interesting transition figure. He was an English gentleman, but he was born in America. And he kind of he's kind of one of these bridge figures to like this, this cavalier aristocracy that would later become the old Virginia planters. Um he founds the he founded the city of Richmond. He surveyed the borderline between Virginia and North Carolina. Um, and he bought and built Westover Plantation, which is, you know, my personal, one of my personal favorite places on earth, one of the best examples of Georgian architecture in the United States. Um, and and so, so basically there was this whole world of what the South was and really what America was before the Civil War. You know, I, I say this to people, my ideal of what an America I want to bring about in my lifetime is an America like the America under the administration of James Monroe like it, it's literally called the era of good feelings like are you kidding me why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you want to go back to that you know like like you know all the cities had this sort of brick kind of um so there was a lot of old colonial architecture mixing with the new sort of federalist neoclassical architecture um you know those those beautiful little buntings those half circles of red white and blue you'd see everywhere flags were all over the place there was you know legends were spread about revolutionary war generals we don't even know about now like tadeo's Kosciuszko, um like casimir pollaski and and you know the uh the baron von steuben and you know nathaniel green and light horse harry lee and 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 you know uh horatio gates and and i could keep like all of these like the Lafayette man when Lafayette visited the United States about a good third of the United States just renamed their town county street whatever to Lafayette just because he came there to the to the not even not even because he came there just because he entered the United States like like this is this is the sort of excitable world and you can read about it in a uh, democracy in America actually de Tocqueville talks about it quite a bit uh, from an outsider's perspective but it was this beautiful sort of like you know dare I say medieval world um, that was kind of killed in Europe because Europe fell under the spell of absolutism and rationalism and modernity. And this kind of medieval strain of what used to be in Europe and in England specifically survived in the United States, uh, ironically, because of its, well, not ironically, because of its system of government constitutional federalism is just is, is as close to a medieval form of government that you're going to get in the 21st century. Um, And that's why I, I kind of wanted to write this, this, this myth, this, this mythologizing of Virginia to bring it as close as I can to this, to this medieval ideal that we all have in our mind as to what Western European civilization is supposed to look like at its best in terms of aesthetics and organization and personal principles and all this other stuff. Like you know, honestly, honestly, you know, if 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 you're not thinking of like a Shakespeare play of like Henry the Fifth or something like that as the peak of like what Western civilization is supposed to, be, I don't know about you, man. Like you know, I know enough about the 18th century that I can say fuck the 18th century, um, fuck the 17th century. man. People think the twentieth century was bad. They should look at the seventeenth century, man. Holy shit! <laughs> um, but you know, but America, America's kind of, and and the, specifically the South within America. New England used to be like that too. Um, you know, it really is just this 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 happy, fun, carefree sort of naive place. And Henry Adams, who's one of the great, he was um, he was great grandson of. John Adams, grandson of John Quincy Adams, who are both presidents of the United States, um, he wrote two books: "The Education of Henry Adams" and um, "And uh, Mont Saint Michel and the." Ch- he wrote a bunch of stuff, not just that, but I'm referencing these two. And in Mont Saint Michel and Chartres, he's writing about he's kind of like trying to reconstruct this medieval worldview. Um, and Henry Adams always called himself this, you know, 18th century man, like he was born in Boston, like right on the tail end of the revolutionary era. And, you know, his grandfather, John Quincy, was an old man who knew, who was very close with John Adams himself. And John Quincy walked Henry Adams to school one time when Henry Adams was misbehaving. And so basically John Quincy grows up surrounded by the relics of America's founding and the last vestiges of its living memory. And he dies in 1914, right before the beginning of World War I. And so you see in this man, this kind of, this, this sole witness to the change the United States goes through. And towards the end of his life, kind of like H.P. Lovecraft, he's bemoaning how his country is being destroyed by, um, by all of these sort of, you know, Eastern European immigrants, you know, who are distorting the culture. And you, you really do get the sense that something was lost. And now that we're here, we're experiencing the consequences of culture distortion and, here in the 21st century, we're kind of going back into the past and digging up those things, at least heritage Americans like myself, you know, we're going back in the past and digging up those things, you know, from our localities, from our states, from our countries that, that, you know, inspire us that that like show us what this place used to be and what it can still be, you know, even if in a lesser form, you know, what, you know, the, the, the ease, the happiness, the trust, the faith. You know, like all Americans believe that America is one of God's favorite countries. It's true. You know, look at what he's done for us throughout our history. Like, like I, I, I cannot believe, and that's because America was explicitly founded to be a country of God, to be the city on the hill. And I, I, you know, even in the South, we, we have our own thing about that, but I, I, I do think that's true. And, you know, the specific describes the general, Virginia is the United States. Virginia is the United States. Um, Our first, what, discounting John Adams, our first five uh, presidents—Washington, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe—all came from Virginia. Um, Virginia has disproportionately provided more officers of the military than any other state. Um, It has it has given more of its blood and treasure uh, to the foundation of the United States. People don't understand that. The Northwest Territory, uh, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, parts of Minnesota, were all conquered by Virginia. That was all Virginian territory. Virginian generals, William Henry Harrison being one, um, conquered all of that territory from the Black Hawks and other Indians. And it was all the Western territories of the state of Virginia. And the Northwest Ordinance created all of those states essentially out of nothing. You know, so 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 in a very real sense virginia is the united states and you know i felt like a place like that you know i i there's a crusader king's 2 mod i played called after the end which gave me the idea of specifically making america an explicitly medieval setting with kings and castles and all that in a sort of medieval stasis world um but like but like from that I am also pouring all of this like these real sentiments, these real history and I'm in essence I'm I'm reconstructing and reifying uh what the history of Virginia is and and in, in, in something that I know is false that I know never happened really but it's but I'm writing it and if I'm writing it, well then it did happen you know um at least if, if, if nowhere else but in the minds of myself and the readers who read it you know, so that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to do here.
0: I say for the most part, you're certainly succeeding. Um, and I say for the most part, because again, um, and you know, you mentioned at the very beginning that this is a, this is a sampler. Like this isn't the whole thing. <laughs> These are a bunch of characters and you're doing, it's sort of somewhat a variety show. It's a, it's a preview of what is to come. Um it had me on the edge of my seat quite literally at certain instances i can't really remember the last time i mean uh, i think the last time i read a book that really had me on the edge of my seat like that was um aerosmith by sinclair lewis which is one of my favorite favorite books um i think to be honest i think sinclair lewis is like one of the forgotten writers like i think he he talked about a kind of americana Um, in the Gilded Age, I always look fondly upon the Gilded Age, um, Gilded Age in the Victorian era when studying Britain. Um, This sort of of turn-of-the-century idea of America, it's like with America coming into its own, knowing that whether we remain isolationist or not, we're creating something that has more legs to it, that has more pace to it that is striving for a kind of innovation in a way that is humble in terms of its day-to-day life, but the people and the places that are being crafted day in and day out is, he wrote something saying, creating something brusker, like a new ideal. Um, He also, you know, Faulkner had a fictional county um Sinclair Lewis had a fictional state in a lot of his work so I think he had this in Dodsworth, Babbitt and Aerosmith um state called Winnemac which is basically in the Midwest so it's it's wedged between you know Indiana and, and Illinois basically um and you can almost feel maybe in certain senses um the the Sunday picnic after church you can feel that but also looming in the city's plans for the next step of humanity. Um, that's a kind of Americana that, and, and when I visited the the Hemingway Museum uh, at Oak Park, you know, my, my girlfriend surprised me with it. Um, it's rare that someone could surprise me. Uh, as an aside, not only did I find out that Hemingway and I both have an opera singing mother, but I found this, uh, I was able to peer into the turn of, America flirting with modernism before it came about. And you can start to see why it was Hemingway Why Hemingway was the way that he was, why he was so international, why he was so blank slate, why he rejected so much of his surroundings, much like the rest of the nation. Um, that house at Oak Park and seeing the old pictures is reminiscent of the kind of America that Sinclair Lewis um, uh, wrote about and captured. The kind of America that you're capturing, this kind of Americana, is—it's almost like you've taken principles of poetry and them I, I think in a lot of ways this is very Southern and is very Faulkner as well. But you're taking qualities of poetry and plugging them into prose. You're not—you're not writing Beowulf. You're not writing these epic poems. You were taking the structure of prose, but you were speaking on something that is real in essence and making an actual narrative out of it as if it were a true course of events. You're expressing what's seen in spirit. There's a great line, great line you have describing um, you know, with the I don't want to spoil too much. Like I could no, I, please, please <laughs> read it. I could uh, I could talk about um, I think I've memorized uh, to, can paraphrase at the very least you know the 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 short story with the clans right so mm-hmm. McDonald um, you know they're going to settle this dispute by fighting uh, fighting to first bleed basically and the McDonalds they follow the letter of the law not the spirit of the law in their approach. Um, you are not, and that, that reflects what I see, what you're doing with your writing with the Country Squires Notebook. You're taking the spirit of the South that's typically placed in a song like Dixie, or a poem, a poem would be like The Wanderer in England, but you're putting it into prose, which is very difficult. It's very difficult because it's, if you go, it's a, it's a tightrope. If you go lean too much one way, you fall over of being too safe. It's just like, well, I can see what you're trying to do, but you just didn't go far enough with it. And you go too far. It looks farcical and, and childish almost, but you managed to stay on the tightrope.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think, I think you're, you're kind of getting at indeed what I am trying to do, which is, which is sort of take these principles of poetry. And, you know, I, I, what the great Western innovation for literature is, is prose, right? Prose simply didn't exist the way it does now. Um, prior to like probably even Shakespeare, I think Shakespeare invented prose writing. Um, and so in all honesty, if you're brought up in that tradition, you're kind of LARPing if you're writing in anything other than prose. Um, maybe towards maybe as you get better at it and you learn the techniques of something like epic poetry you could write an outright epic poem but the thing is is i don't think and i i like the odyssey and i like the iliad and i like the aeneid um and and all those other great epic poems and i'm not here to shit talk them it's just they were more relevant to an oral culture that was a lot slower that you had people who memorized them that you could shout them out but, you know, we in the West are like a bunch of autistic nerds who like to sit there and read our texts. All right. Um, we are that is that is and that might be a little bit Spenglerian, but that's how we're different. You know, we like to sit there and quietly read our books, um, you know, slowly sh- changing and shaping our mind. And so in, in, in my mind, like like that's kind of the thing I'm working with. You know, I'm writing this for someone to quietly read. I'm trying to make it as entertaining of a quiet read as possible. I have a lot of imagery. Um my writing style, some people say I write like I'm writing video game cutscenes, like they're reading a video game cutscene. Um, you know, it's it's very much like, you know, it's very blunt for southern writing. Southern writing is usually um it has like little Southern writing is kind of like, I'm a fighting a knife fighter. Like there's a lot of dancing around and every so often you get stabbed. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for me, my writing, I kind of like, it's kind of like fighting a dude with a club. You know, you're going to get hit quite a bit. Um, And that's kind of how I do it. You know, it's, it's like, because, because we're at the point with, you know, decreasing attention spans are a thing, both for readers and writers. Therefore the writing itself, the, you know, In the 20th century, people were low time preference enough where you could get away with almost sapping any sort of visceral enjoyment out of any piece and consigning that sort of visceral enjoyment to the pulp genre. Um, But now that's not just going to cut it anymore. Basically, you need to candy coat any great commentary and literature that you're writing with action and enjoyment and plot. That's what you're going to need to do. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do here. You know, and you know, it may of course just just destroy everything I'm trying to do, but it's it's what I believe and it's what I'm doing. Um, and yeah, I, I a lot of this is commentary, but the thing is, is I'm I'm sick of fucking short stories that like dissident right guys will write. It's like, oh, here's Vimerica. The story is about a a, a disenfranchised. <laughs> the story is about a disenfranchised young man. Who doesn't do anything and, you know, sits there and plays video games all day and, you know, wishes his life didn't suck. And, you know, he goes out and he does this base thing and that's the story, guys. And, you know, oh, total collapse. And I'm like, motherfucker, fuck you. I don't want to read that shit. I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to read what my everyday life is. I'm just kidding. I'm, I have a very happy life. Um, <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to read what like I see people like L posting on, you know, on Twitter like, like, bro, like get that shit out of here. You know, write about something fun, write about something that you like, write about something that's enjoyable, write about, some, you know, and, and here's the other thing. I hate tragedies. I absolutely despise tragedies. I've always hated tragedies of any kind because man, I, I, you know, it just, it, it's like, it's like, you know, rending open your soul for no reason. You know, I try to write, you know, people like, oh, you're never going to write great literature this way. All great literature is born of suffering. Um, but, you know, what, man, fuck that shit. Like, I like comedies. I like it when things, because guess what? The world is a comedy. God loves comedy. God doesn't really like tragedy so much. Mostly because God's never, I'm, I'm not going to say God's ne- God knows tragedy. I'm not going to sit here and say what God knows and doesn't know. Um, but, I, you know. God has a sense of humor and he, he, he sets up things that are, I think entirely, I think the whole world is an existence to basically just give God some entertainment. I think that's why it's there. Um, and I'm here to do it, man. And, you know, I like lighthearted shit that has some commentary on some stuff and, you know. And yeah there's there's terrible sufferings and personal tragedies that the characters have to go through but usually they come out it they they tend to find I like writing characters especially in the southern context who find the best of themselves when they are confronted with terrible situations you know who 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 reach down and that's kind of the heroic impulse isn't it it's like it's like when you take someone and you place them in the worst situation that person either breaks or find something within them and stands. You know, that's what the South did. That's what the South did during the um uh the Civil War. The South found within itself its best virtues and aspects during the Civil War. You know, its total commitment to the cause it believed in. Um, what is it? I think it was something like 90% of Southern men were under arms at one point or another. That's completely fucking inconceivable, especially even to the especially to the modern day. You know, 90%, 9 out of 10 of all men that you would ever meet were in the Southern Army at one point or another. You know, and yeah, there were a lot of deserters and, you know, shirkers and all the other stuff, but I'm not going to get into that. Um and you know, and they were, they were, they were. Yet you read about how poorly equipped they were. Like most of them didn't have shoes. They wore rags that were like dyed by their wives. They they were like these gaunt, thin, scarecrow-looking guys because because their rations were like meager to none. Um, they were covered in dirt and mud, and you know, had a mishmash of all sorts of different muskets and all that, and a terrible discipline. Um, what they had was elan. And sort of a a you know excess of bravery, which allowed them to do some some totally unbelievable things. And they were led by these like war wizard sort of shaman chieftains, um, who almost like 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 magically just produced these victories as if by incantation. You know, you read about what you read about what Stonewall Jackson did in the Valley campaign, where he humiliated the Pathfinder, John C. Fremont. Um, who was a national hero, by the way? Everyone thought he was like this great general. Um, he was also a son of a bitch, and I hate him because of his personal politics. Fuck you, John C. Fremont. I hope you're burning in hell with um uh, with uh Phil Sheridan and uh, George Stoneman and the rest. Um, M-
0: meanwhile, on Twitter, I was just like <laughs> talking about how John C. Fremont. Uh, coined the term golden gate uh <laughs> won san francisco for mexico I'm like
1: oh what a great guy and
0: <laughs> the southern sensitivity not so much You're well going.
1: you know i mean i mean fremont fremont was a radical abolitionist and he was like he was like foaming at the mouth like like he was straight up an ideologue um i'm, I'm yeah he's he's great for california he could be one of your california heroes but down here stonewall jackson just kicked his ass with a force about one quarter of the size that uh fremont and banks oh, had.
0: I, I don't i don't think that anyone's under any like illusion that the stonewall jackson wasn't the greatest general of the civil war and may, maybe that century like i have to so, go back and look like maybe von mackinson or von mulkey well na- okay napoleon so yeah there. well
1: but... so as as a dude as a dude who is educated in military theory um i have a military background i have to I have to disagree with you because Stonewall Jackson's Vic Stonewall Jackson was not the great general Stonewall Jackson was the most favored by God of any general, I think in the 19th century, which is more important. Um, like you read about what happened at Chancellorsville. Yeah. he he, He just, he just takes, he just takes 18. He's like, he's meeting with Lee on the first morning of Chancellorsville and, or second morning of Chancellorsville. Um, and Lee's like, okay, I think, you know, Jackson got this word from this major. He's like, yeah, I think I could do a flanking movement on Hooker's army. Keep in mind, Hooker has an army twice the size of Lee's and another army crossing the Rappahannock being barely held back by Jubal early. Um, that's the exact same size. So Lee is outnumbered about, I think, 140,000 to about maybe, maybe I think uh, 40,000 or something like that. I don't remember the exact numbers, but... 62, don't ask me. Yeah, I... I
0: was a big military history, but for a long time. So, do, sorry, do carry on.
1: Yeah, I'm 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 fuzzy on details. That's always been my weakness. I'm fuzzy on details. Um, but Stonewall Jackson is, is meeting with Lee, and he he says to Lee, he's like, "All right, I'm going to do a flanking movement." And Lee's like, "Okay, how many men do you need?" And he said, "My whole corps," which is like which is like you know the lot. It was like eighteen thousand men. It was like like sixty percent of um of Lee's force available at Chancellorsville at the time, and Lee's like, What will you leave me? And then Jackson said, Anderson and McClaw's divisions, <laughs> and Lee just kind of looks at him and he's like, Carry on, then <laughs> he's he's like, he's like, All right, and so and so Stonewall Jackson has this major. So I'm only telling this because this is the I think the single funniest story in the entire civil war. Um, he has this major survey, this trail around the Union lines, and the major's like, "Yeah, we're like four miles away from the Union lines. They won't even see us, man. We could just sneak the whole corps around." And Jackson's like, "I totally believe you. Let's do it." Um, and so he picks up eight. He picks up eighteen thousand fucking men, and every single person on the Union line sees them for the entire time that they're doing the flanking maneuver. Um, like they are, they are just watched and observed the whole time. So there's like some minor skirmishes, but like you have all these officers going up to Joe Hooker, who's the commander of the Union Army of the Potomac, mm-hmm. You're going up to Joe Hooker's headquarters, and they're like, General Hooker, uh, you know, we're being flanked, and General Hooker just looks at him and he's like, No, we're not. And they're like, oh, okay. And so they go back to their positions and they watch (laughs) Stonewall Jackson. And so he he had no reason to get as far as he did. He just did. He just got his 18,000 men just set up to go and he just had AP Hill. He's like, okay, fucking charge him. And then they did. And they happened to come out on the extreme union right where um, uh, General Howard's uh, German Corps was stationed this was the worst performing corps in the entire army of the potomac none of them spoke english they were all like you know 48ers who who didn't really who were like basically drafted fresh off the boat and press ganged into the union armies they didn't really give a shit they liked that german general they fought under franz siegel and but like uh, after he was replaced they 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 didn't care um and so stonewall jackson comes out of nowhere and it's like They're sitting there literally with their pants down, their rifles stacked, playing cards. And like they have all these screaming and keep in mind when, you know, Stonewall Jackson's men were going through the woods to charge this position. This is in a place called the wilderness. And I promise I'll bring this back to the book in a second. Um, This is in a place called the wilderness, which is some of the thickest woods in Virginia. That's why it's called that. And every single piece of clothing on these rebel soldiers had been stripped off. So basically you have all of these hollering banshees that are kind of like a Celtic war band that I imagine the Roman legion would see um, burst out of the woods, bare ass naked with muskets in hands screaming their rebel yell. Um, and it just causes an automatic mass route like like whole like it, it was inconceivable what this like. This was an eight hour flanking movement that was launched. the attack was launched almost at sundown. And like, this was the most successful maneuver that anyone had done in the army of the Potomac or in the army of Northern Virginia. And it could have been a can I, um, if Stonewall Jackson had not been killed by friendly fire that evening. I think, I think God was like impressed enough. He was like, he was like, okay, I think this is a good enough performance. You don't have to live on earth anymore. Come back and join me. <laughs> um, and you know, I, I talk about that a lot because, you know, Stonewall Jackson, Jackson is, is, is kind of reconstructed into this half deified figure called jack stonewall within this story i have my mm-hmm. own pantheon too um within this I, I universe. Noticed, you
0: notice that yeah
1: <laughs> yeah it's like it's like you know so so i'm a, I'm a foaming at the mouth christian i used to be a hindu some people still bring it up okay i understand it but like right now you know i believe in god and you'll, you'll see that in the story too if you read it but like within every European man's mind exists this weird sort of balance between a pagan past and the Christian present. Um, And I think any serious like writer of fantasy or any of this sort of genre tries to do that, but like, and there's all sorts of like American pantheon ideas out there, like deifying the founding fathers. And there does need to be an aspect of that. Um, Some deify Confederate generals. There also needs to be an aspect of that, but you know, America has its own sort of like figures that you could easily turn into a pantheon. And I've, I've, I've kind of done it, you know, I limited myself to, 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 to two Confederate generals. I feel like two Confederate generals turned into gods was enough. Um, minor deities, of course, not, you know, God. Um, but, you know, there's, there's, you know, also like, for example, the God of messengers is, is the, the sort of mercury figure is Paul Revere. Um, the, um, the, you know, the, the, the God King is the, is the serpent Amaru, um, which some say America is named after, um, the sort of earth mother goddess is the angel Columbia. You know, it's, it's, it's like, it's like all of these things are things that we have that we could spin it like, you know, the God of artisans, craftsmen, you know, uh laborers and Negroes is John Henry you know like like this is these are all thing we have things in our history that we could kind of like Tolkien does just spin up into this minor this minor mythology and you know whole peoples that we understand now can be completely defined by the is of one or another deity you know you've you've also got I've got my sort of mephistopheles figure in the turncoat um you know, Americans hate traders. We're one of the few places that still does, um, and all that other stuff. I mean, I mean, that's kind of—I don't even know where I'm going with this, but it's like it's like yeah, like this is—I'm—I'm I'm trying my best to build like a holistic world here that you know encompasses both things that are well known and things slightly more esoteric. And it's not even just things from American history. You know, for example, my favorite story to write. And my personal favorite of this was Martinsville's last race. You know that was my favorite story to write, and that's just because, like, you know, NASCAR in many ways is is one of these like few was one of these few places where heroes you would still see heroes compete against each other every Sunday um, in their chariots, and you would see some of them die.
0: That's my that was my favorite of of all of them.
1: And i didn't think it would be when i first started reading it
0: i was like i actually considered skipping it and going back to it because i saw a glimpse in there's a dragon involved like, my i want to read the dragon story that I, I was at a i was at a pie shop that you know uh does a good uh london fog across the street from uh from the gym i'm i'm training out of and i was just like yeah i want to read the dragon story but i stuck to it and i was so glad that i did like that ugh. that 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 story legitimately blew me away Like, the the story of the Klansman had me on the edge of my seat. It was very entertaining, especially, um, you know, the dueling fiddlers. Uh, That, in essence, too, was, like, very much like fighting, which is why I enjoyed it so much. It's, like, high IQ fighting, right? Most fighters I meet aren't thinking at a certain level. Um, That was reminiscent of high-level hand-to-hand combat, but just in fiddling. So I really enjoyed it, and that had me at the edge of my seat. But the the race story just had something that, how do I put this, it had something more than most myth stories. It wasn't formulaic by any means, even though that story has been told before, like in, in structure. But you gave it a kind of life, you gave it a kind of, I don't even want to say madness, but its protagonist had a level of commitment that most people would actually just deem quite literally insane. And you even you even touched upon that with um, and I love the way you framed the memory in the library. Like I forget, I'm paraphrasing, but you said the word spoke basically from three years ago, as if someone was saying it right then and now. I forget the exact way you phrase it, but
1: that just... Um, hold on. A long-removed voice spoke in a longer-removed hall, and the silence that followed slammed shutters on the memory before it could continue.
0: That, yeah. That, the it, it's, it's not just where you're
1: taking the stories. It's
0: not just the subtext that you're lining a lot of things with. And for something that is again it's like prose for volume a la faulkner it has more subtext to it than you might think but towards the end as it carried on into like essentially the outer stratosphere and then the cosmos um both in essence and quite literally in terms of uh, in terms of the plot um you went into a threshold of of reality you went past a threshold of reality that is still reality that most people would beg would beg someone to be capable of expressing if someone could give that to them and most in 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 this day and age most people like in tv shows will just opt for interdimensional travel or time travel right that's the best way that they can express it you didn't box that in by any means you didn't box that essence in to give that story life, and that that, that that's also a, the same type rope I was just talking about before. That could have gone either too literal and boring, or it could have gone just be absolutely ridiculous. But you managed with the the prose that you cultivated to stay on that type. Rope.
1: Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is like the best the best way to write a story that people you know, don't know how you did it is to sit there and not know how you yourself did it. Like, I have no idea how the fuck I wrote that story. Um, (laughs) I just kind of sat there and I'm like, oh, this would be cool. And oh, this would be cool. And oh, this is a cool little motif. And oh, this is a cool little thing to throw in here. And it's kind of like, it's kind of, you know, I was a bartender for a while. Um, Oh, no shit. Yeah. yeah, I I
0: I was a cocktail bar manager and bartender for five years.
1: Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's one of the better professions for writers and creative people just because of the sheer, sheer amount of people you meet. Um, I poured drinks for Lucifer once. That's a story for another day. You too. Um, okay. Yo, yeah, no, I, apparently everyone has.
0: We, we, um, we should exchange Lucifer stories. At the end, but do carry
1: on. Yeah, no, apparently I, I found this out like after it happened to me, apparently everyone has, um, which it's almost like a rite of passage for a bartender. Um, but, um, but, you know, but yeah, man, I mean, I mean, I just kind of like, I just, I just imagine like, I, I it, like with this story, I just figured it was like, it's like, imagine taking autism to as far of an extreme as you possibly can, and then breaking the firmament with it.
0: Yeah, it's it's pretty accurate. It's like mama, why is why is he racing around the track like his life depends on or like like someone's chasing him or like he's actually racing? I don't know, but you can't don't come back here, don't look at that. <laughs> like that really <laughs> that really is exactly what you described. It's like it's it's ascending optimism. We have a running joke that in AFF that all the guys in it are just you know, I'm I'm just weaponizing a ton of autists. Like my goal is to create god-fearing weaponized autists who can lift 600 pounds, run sub five minute miles and throw head kicks that can, you know, permanently rupture craniums. Like um, that, I think that's pretty accurate, especially in, in the way it, it, you had it as a scholar, versus the, the protagonist, right? So right off the bat, you know, you have the deep Ebola autism just staying in the library all day long. And then having a drastic shift from that and going to this far off lost track. Um, yeah no that 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 story i mean that's that's something i've been thinking about all day to be honest um in terms of um you know it, just circling back just briefly you and i share a distaste of, of tragedy you know, okay so i was mentioning a guy the, the saxon cross you know anglo from from louisiana he's been in the chat saying uh Mao, this is so anglo anglo pill Write something fun. Oh, no, Arthur doesn't do that. Um, <laughs> uh, right, I don't. Fun, fun is not really something I've ever really been interested in. Um, but I, I despise tragedy because it's just this whiny, it's over, bro it's so over like i just we're we're all
1: consigned to these terrible choices we make and anything we do we're damned and ah,
0: oh my gosh i candidates chase mcbride hello mr it's so over we're so back himself this is, As is as an aside paul just getting into the deep lore of you know the instagram sphere uh yes, sir I, I, this series of podcasts i'm doing is uh you know is original fiction or original writing, right? Um, after getting out of Orthodox Lent, where we were just talking about you know church history and um, being ready to fight to the death, but also you know being deep in prayer, right? So getting into to original fiction and poetry, and Chase McBride has a moniker named uh, I Candidus. Um, and we have this running joke. He has this habit of saying, "I will now be taking a hiatus for six months." And then the next day he'll come up with five just stunning poems and they'll ask him about it. And be are like, eh, I don't know. I don't really, I don't really know what I was thinking. Um, <laughs> it's so over. You don't even know it. I've been doxxed again by my own stuff. Yeah. He's had four different face reveals as well. He's truly, he, he's a one of a kind. It's incredible. Um, his poetry is, is unbelievable. There are two guys in our neck of the woods um and I, I think i may have mentioned that, yeah i did mention this to you i canada some greater myth who i think have the potential to be generational uh generational pure fiction writers um but the, uh but andrew the saxon cross we were talking about before um you know yeah he says write something fun i don't do that yeah i don't really enjoy tragedy though like this sort of like anguish like i mean i've read hamlet like 12 times and I was in a, when I was in drama school, I was in a play called Hamlet Machine from the 1970s that came out of Germany. And it's like reduced. It's, it's, it's reduced and it's, it's, you have to fill it in with movement sequences. And um, and I, I did a reading of uh, Ozymandias, right? So I credited as Ozymandias just in the middle of a, a very bizarro abstract movement sequence as you do in drama school. Um, and he just the, the whole premise of hamlet machine which is actually i found more interesting than hamlet itself which a lot of people you know get very upset he's saying is he goes further into the my head is so heavy with thoughts right so instead of to be or not to be he just says i don't want to take part anymore i want to be a machine um that turned into something more interesting that turned into like some form of reactionary futurism and most people will know the true origins of futurism uh, is a very right wing neck- side of things not you know leftist modernity you know that a lot of guys would shout return on Instagram would talk about um, but it's just, it can only tragedy can only go so far. Like, it just gets sadder and sadder and sadder and sadder. And I don't really have an interest in the bottom of that just being the ultimate sadness. Titus Andronicus, I mean, you know, not not to get into the more discussion we were having earlier, but Aaron the Moor is one of the greatest villains ever written because he's just truly unapologetic. It's like Iago, but with more of a spine, right? He's just, he's outright. He's not just scheming. He's scheming you, and he's telling other people that he's scheming. And when he's being hung, he says, "My only regret is that I didn't, I didn't do a thousand more." Um. And, so the tragedies that we see from Shakespeare, and my, my my favorite tragedies, kept going beyond that to the point where it's actually something interesting. I joke that Troilus and Cressida is like the original modernist um, work because it just ends so bleakly. Cymbeline actually has a happy ending, which is why I like it so much. What I enjoy is deep trial, like agonizing trial, like he almost doesn't make it or even loses a piece of him, and he rises uh, through the final threshold, not only victorious but truly not the same. Like, and you know that that reflects the Joseph Campbell ideal. So, I'm, I'm I'm simultaneously agreeing with you, Jay Bird in agreement, maxing with you. Um, while I, uh, you know, basically push back uh, with my good friend heckling me in the chat, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> but uh, you no, know, I, I do think God has a sense of humor, and that humor doesn't always just come in an outright humor. It comes in as in in poetry. It comes in in riddles. It comes in cheeky placements. And you 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 describe things as as cutscenes, and that's actually something that. Um, I haven't said it to anybody before, but like this this flash right here, like this, especially the interludes that you had of the joining story, right? So you were introducing each character, like the builder and the farmer's wife. Those felt more like cut scenes, like you described, as opposed to actual you know, stories, which I really enjoy because I love a good interlude. Um, but that's, I've been writing on and off a myth for about two years now. Um, that's completely blank. So I'm not trying to immortalize anything. It's not, it has nothing to do with California. It has nothing to do with, um, has nothing to do with anything.
1: You know, the fact that you've said that makes me think it has everything to do with California. Um, because if you go out, if you go out with that idea in your head, it, it will actually be entirely about that thing you're trying to not make it about. <laughs> that's well, how it I mean, works.
0: When, so th- this is this is first career and we'll, we'll, we'll get back to your book because that's what we're here to talk about, but to go on another tangent, um, when I when I started this uh it was COVID I lost so 2020 I was I had two very well-paying bar jobs that I you know I positioned myself really well for to work 30 hours a week and train full-time and I was gonna get into copywriting as well um Uncle Gavin shut everything down me being someone who feels he needs to embody his philosophy he can't just speak and then not follow through I refused to take the unemployment that was, uh, that was given, you know, $3,000 a month in the state of California. My overhead was $3,000 a month. I said, mm, no, I'll take the suffering. Thanks. Um, I'll put my money where my mouth is for better or for worse. And, uh, I worked overnight security. You know, my, my, my audience knows this, you know, a million fucking times over, but I worked overnight security, uh, with a two hour commute each way. Um, and I, I asked for the overnight shift because I wanted to do something, you know, I, I didn't want to have to say hi to anybody. I wanted to have, you know, the computer all to myself, all eight hours where I can just hopefully do something. And, you know, I, I realized that I had writing prowess and I was, you know, trying to make money quickly. Um, much like you did, except I said, no, I'm going to make money a different way. And I'm going to, I'm going to marinate on this more and more and more and more. Um, I was originally going to sell it to Jailhouse Strong because the myth is surrounding a strong man. Um, And there was a, it's funny. There's a, there's a cut scene from a, from Twilight Princess, the Zelda game that comes to mind for one of the, one of the characters, the the Stolfos, um, and i wanted to create something where i was actually it's a very hemingway idea where it's like i'm just going to bleed everything that i am and, into a myth and it's going to be as violent and as visceral as possible um it's going to be agonizing it's going to be you know to briefly talk about aa it's going to be like the barbarians right this new wave it's terrifying like it's it's, it's a destruction um and you mentioned, you know, a long epic poem as well. Um, you know, I was somewhat striving for that. You know, when I was, when I was ten years old, where was a young author up op- competition, at uh, my elementary school, and they had you they, they gave you different kinds of, you know, stories you could write, you know, little little templates. And I saw a myth and I said, Wow, that yeah, I think I wanna write that. And then I like look further in description, I made an executive decision at ten years old. I'm like, I don't think I'm ready to write that yet. Like, no. Uh, maybe maybe later in life, you know, 10 years so. old. Um, and I decided, you know, I think I have that in me. I think I've done enough. I think I've lived through enough. I think I have enough within me that I can bleed something out that can be the kind of myth that an old man can have PTSD reciting an oral tradition regarding it. <laughs> um, I I only say now that has nothing to do with California because we've been talking, I mean I I just did a just with Andrew the Saxon Cross. We just did. A, I told you about it about three times now. A, a writer's workshop, mm-hmm. um, and we t- we've been talking about immortalizing you know uh, Virginia, and it's you know if there are certain instances where I can speak about California. I wrote, um, I, I sort of bled something on my Instagram story about needing to speak with my city again, needing to speak with San Francisco again, needing to have. Needing to swim in shark infested waters again and needing to be standing for three hours of worship in the cathedral with battered legs from hearts warring. like. yeah that 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 has to do more with my interaction with the city and immortalizing California, but the myth itself is pretty blank slate in some ways like there's some Exodus influences. um, But. Yeah, it's uh, I I mean, I hope uh, I hope maybe I can finish quickly like you did because it's it's been some time and uh,
1: put yourself in a situation where rent needs to be paid and not paying rent is not an option.
0: <laughs> maybe uh, I am dissolving anti-fragile fitness. Uh, I just I just really need to get this done, and uh, <laughs> if, if our financial well-being depends on it, then I think we'll really do it um yeah i don't i don't think that would go enough very well um but yeah I'm, I'm gonna force force it out of myself uh you've certainly been an inspiration for that um whether i have an external motivator or not um i have to ask you why how, how did you pick each kind of short story right so you know, the, there's the, the dragon. It's so well-rounded, too. And not in, like, a cringe, just like, oh, he has a little bit of this, a little bit of that. A lot of people will try to be well-rounded in a collection of stories. And it's just, like, it's formulaic and it's anecdotal and it's corny, right? You're kind of playing with notes. You're kind of playing with, um, you know, a bunch of counterbalances that are asymmetrical at first glance. but When you zoom out, it makes sense in terms of That that might be a very schizo way of describing it. So if that doesn't make sense, I apologize. But um, between the race and the witch hunter and the dragon and the clansman, how did that all come about? Like, where did you have you know one-off inspirations for each of them? Um, did you have somewhat of an idea of this mythos? Is is this the core of the mythos? By the way, that's something maybe you
1: can. Answer. Oh no 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 no. This is <clears throat> this is like it's been said. This is a spattering. This is a um, this is a sample. Although it it has helped me uh, it has helped me sort of uh, expand upon a lot of ideas that I had that were going into much longer works. Um, and as a matter of fact, every single piece of work I ever write in my mythos can be referenced at any time by any other work within the mythos, because it's a living world. It's a living, breathing world that can that can reference any of these legends that you have read about. And, you know, they may even quote, like characters may quote parts of the legends towards each other. Um, and what what we're reading right here is actually comparatively small. Most of my mythos, you know, really does take place in Virginia. I have the, the idea is if I can mythologize Virginia to a satisfactory extent, I can then scale up to try to mythologize the United States. That's oh. my plan. Oh. Um, I will stick in Virginia till I have finished all of the works I have said will take place in Virginia. And then I'm going to try to take on the whole U.S. at once. Um, we'll see how it goes. You're, but You're fucking crazy. Well, we'll see how it goes. Um I mean, the goal is to be Virgil. The goal is to write the Ennead. Um, I mean, I would rather shoot for the stars and land on the moon um, is, is kind of the whole thing with it. But I mean, you know, you asked me how I picked each story. It benefits the writer that, you know, and one of my biggest influences is Shelby Foote, who is uh, very much influenced by Faulkner. Um you know, Shelby Foote says that, you know, when, when he was writing a Civil War series, he went to every single battlefield around the time of year that the battle happened. So he could see how the foliage was, you know, the the climate, uh, the visibility, all that other stuff. So he could almost like feel where the battle was taking place. He had a mental image. Pretty much every every story I wrote takes place in a place I have been. Um you know, the first one, old man mountain is, was, was my, um, was me. That was me having fun, man. I wrote that one out just to have fun. Um, and that's like your typical sort of tall tale. You would hear, you hear tales like that in the South, or at least you used to hear tales like that in the South, you know, that old men would tell kids to have fun with them. Um, but you know, you know, that's, that's just, that's just like, you know, it, it, it's like I try to, to think of different things because I, I read a lot and I tried to associate some of these things I would read um, with like places I would go. I would try to make mental associations and then turn those mental associations into stories. Um, the second story uh, or the yeah, the second story, The Taps of Old Westmoreland, the Witchfinder story. Um, that was me channeling all of the pulp, the Robert E. Howard I had ever read. Um, I love Robert E. Howard, the Conan stories, the, um, uh, the, you know, Solomon Kane is probably one of my biggest influences. Um, and I've been to the tidewater of Virginia, which is this very like low swampy, but also kind of like forested region. Um, it's, it's a very strange place. The whole Chesapeake Bay is very strange. Um, cause it's like, it's simultaneously forested and swampy. Um, and uh, matter of fact James Michener wrote a great novel. I think the, the best novel about the spirit of it called Chesapeake following a following a story of a single family in, in um, uh, on the Chesapeake Bay from colonization to the Vietnam War. Um, but you know I I felt like the story because I wanted to write a short story for all the different regions of Virginia. Um, and so I felt like each region would be conducive to a different kind of storytelling. I wrote, you know, The Taps like it was a Robert E. Howard pulp story. Um, I wrote uh, The Bard. I wrote The Bard. I don't know what it was that inspired me to write The Bard like I wrote The Bard. I mean, you know... the bar i wrote the bard it's kind of like it's kind of like a coming of age you know it's kind of like a coming of age while this while also being like this heroic sort of tale of unification um you know that's what i wrote that um fucking um you know the the was it martinsville's last race um you know, what is, what is the, what is the machine consciousness? The machine consciousness is, is autism made manifest. It is, it is the secret desire. Like you said about, like you said about, you know, Hamlet, you know, I just, I'm sick of thinking I want a machine to do it for me. You know, it's really, it's all born out of laziness. You know, it's, it's like, it's like, you know, how, how could I, how could it, it? So basically is it's like, I did it in a case by case basis, you know, each short story, the dragon of skyline you know that's the piece of the shenandoah valley that i am from my family comes from is the german part of the valley and wagner is my most favorite musician of all time and i i've listened to the whole ring cycle more times than i can count and i've read uh delling this nebeljungen and uh the lead, and all those other in the and the um volsung uh, saga and the things that that wagner based his thing on and i'm like we i just need a i you know and with the Dragon of Skyline, I'm like, you know, look, I'm just copy pasting the Eternal Dragon Slayer story and putting it in my mythos. Like, and and what I think that did is like, because I knew I was very obviously copying this Eternal story, I was, I think I was able to add a couple of details into it that really make it, they make it the um, uh, the American mythos dragon story. And not just, you know, not just a dragon story, you know what I mean? So. Yeah, that's that's kind of all of them. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially about the dragon. That, that that's those are two things that are typically people are not going to equate. They're going to equate dragons with elsewhere. They're going to equate dragons with China or Europe, right? They're, they're not going to see it anywhere in the New World. But it was it was appropriately applied, uh, which is why which is why I enjoyed it. Um, you're a fucking crazy person uh and from for me to call you crazy i am i probably got a couple screws loose you have to be if you want to throw bones at another man voluntarily in a ring it's just it's just it is the way it is um to attempt to mythologize the entire united states
1: i mean you know, I raised my right hand and said, you know, I swear to uphold and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, knowing that, you know, domestic enemies were plotting to send me to die for Israel. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't know, man. I mean, you know, it's 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 just an, it's at the end of the day, I don't think it'll succeed. But, you know, I know the story. It was actually the first thing I ever came up with that all of this was born out of was that, you know, whole American mythos. And I could sit here and tell you all of my plans, but that wouldn't be very fun, would it? Um, I mean, off the air, it'd be a whole lot of fun. Oh, yeah. I'll I'll tell you all. I'll tell you offline. But, you know, like I basically, basically growing up, I was dissatisfied by the world um, and I I wanted cool things to happen, and I figured the best way I can make cool things to happen was get good at writing so I could write the cool things I wanted to happen so that they would happen. Um, That's why I write. Uh, Then I realized, getting into my old age, that I actually have the abilities to make the cool things I want to happen happen in my real life. Um, So I can do that, too, but I can also do the writing because that's also pretty cool. And if you're the dude who both writes cool things and then makes cool things happen, then you're not just a great writer. You're a great man in general. Like, you know, how many warrior poet kings? I think the best example of a warrior poet king is King David, um, who uh, who is the only person in the Bible God says was a man after his own heart. God calls King David a man after his own heart. You know, he calls Moses his friend, but but like, you know, why would God say that about this like conquering like terrible humanizing like yeah
0: <laughs> rapist yeah
1: yeah and 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 I think I think it's because God God always looks at us and sees what he sees the best of us he doesn't see like the bad things we do um, he looks at us like a father would he sees the the greatest thing we can be. Um, and the closer we are, of course believing him is in him and, and wanting to please him is the prerequisite. You can't do anything without wanting to do that. Um, but you know, once you do that, like being as close to that perfect version of yourself that God sees in you, um, I think I think that's the that's the ideal. And King David man, he would fight wars, you know with nothing but faith in the Lord and then write psalms and have fun and play music and all that other stuff. And that's what I think God was talking about, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, it's entertaining.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you said something interesting. You raised your right hand knowing that <laughs> you know, the United States would want you to die for Israel. Why knowing we do that? Because I almost signed the dotted line from the Marines twice, and I just felt like I'm not really serving this
1: nation if I do this. So why? I mean, are you asking me why I joined, or, or
0: why why, I, why you joined, and why, it sounds like you knew damn well what the military industrial complex was, so why still join if you knew that?
1: Um, well, number one, I was joining the National Guard, which is older than... Not only is it older than the Constitution, it's older than the Army. Um, National Guard was founded, I think, December the 14th. 1636, uh, when the, uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony organized several regiments of artillery. Um, and the national guard is the most constitutional military establishment because it is a well-regulated militia. Um, it is once a month, three weeks in the summer. Um, it is not a standing army. Everyone in the national guard more or less has a civilian job. They have to integrate themselves into wider civilian society. They are not this mercenary cast like active duty army is. Um, They live with each other. They like each other. They're local. A lot of them are from the communities that they, that they are in the garden. Um, And, you know, that's, you know, I'm beyond overjoyed that I found that um, and that I wasn't allured by the promise of active duty. Um, Another reason is I didn't want to surrender the institution as long as this white man is in the U.S. Army. The U.S. Army has not been lost yet. Um, You know, uh, another thing is I just simply wanted to be a warrior. I just simply wanted to be a soldier. Um, And that was the requirement for me to be a soldier. I didn't care what I needed to do to become a warrior or a soldier, but seeing as how um, overseas service was not a good idea, um, best thing I could do was do the thing here and like I it wasn't out of an overt sense of patriotism not in the real way I mean yeah I do want to serve my country in the way that I serve other people by um doing hard things uh and being interesting so they don't have to um but like you know but I did it because, because it's what I wanted to do in the depths of my soul and what I still want to do in the depths of my soul. You know, in a perfect world, I would be, I would be a higher-ranking officer right now in the U.S. military because that's where I'm supposed to be, you know. But as it stands right now, I am here on the peripheries of society doing, uh, doing um, podcast interviews and writing short stories. I see. Yeah,
0: that's uh, that makes that makes sense, honestly, in terms of National Guard versus Foreign Service. That makes a lot more sense to me because it has more roots in the actual nation itself. So I was like, are you a madman or like a highly principled and compartmentalized man?
1: But that makes they, sense. They're the same thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, big time. <laughs> um, so... I mean, I have to ask. In in terms, I mean, you, you, we can get into your actual plans off the air. But if you're if you're trying to lead, basically, you're doing the presidential route. Um, the presidential route in terms of I'm going to conquer a state as a governor and then go for the leadership. In terms of uh, in terms of canon. finishing with Virginia, do you feel you know the nation and all its nicks and crannies well enough to to, to attempt such a thing?
1: i mean no (laughs) no one but the thing is is it's like you never do (laughs) like you know it's it's the, the best thing that you can get is like good enough you know and the good enough good enough that no one can ever out good enough um, is what gets remembered as the thing that defines the whole genre. Some people have attempted to mythologize America. Um, Orson Scott Card did. I don't think he could. He was too much of a sci-fi writer, uh, yeah. to do fantasy with his uh Alvin Maker series, but I like that. There's another influence. Um, I mean, I think that the the time is right, the era is right. Um, I think I am the right writer, should my life experiences continue to be conducive and you know. I get the ability to to write these things out um, and the freedom, especially in terms of leisure, leisure time and the motivation. Like, you know, I, I think it's possible, but it's going to be one of the – it's not going to be the last thing I ever write in this mythos. To be honest, I don't really care to write anything that's like a serious professional work in terms of fiction um, or really nonfiction outside of this mythos beyond like one-off Substack articles. Um Like I write because I want to like bring about this grand thing that I think will please God and, you know, and bring about like changes that I want to see and will could maybe even serve as part of the basis of a new American culture. Um, But I mean, man, it's like, it's like, you know, I gotta, I gotta sit down and write it out first and but but you know i think i i think i know enough of america at least enough of the broad strokes of what the various regions are known for to have a sort of different representative in in um in what i call i just simply call it the epic because um because that's what it's going to be it's what it started as and i think it's what it's going to be um i know the kind of plot for that how it's going to go um But I'm going to, you know, take that and have all the various people in various regions of the United States and, you know, see if I can make a thing that is claiming from the outset to be the American mythology. And if it sticks, okay, I did it. I did good enough to stick. Um, Even if I could have done better, I did good enough for it to achieve my goals. And if it didn't, well didn't try hard enough i gave it my best shot trying again probably wouldn't be worth it so yeah
0: i think that's the only way you can go about it if i were a betting man which i'm not but if i were i'd certainly say you're shooting for virginia if you continue the way you've displayed plain and simple america best of luck man <laughs>
1: Oh, I'll try my best. I mean, to be honest, if it's in between me writing this great mythology and me having a chance to do a part to save the country, I will take the latter every single time. I already know what's going to be on my tombstone, by the way. I I don't, you know, doesn't matter what I achieve in this life or what I do. Um, When I die, the only thing that's going to be on my tombstone... Other than, um, you know, it's it's going to be a cross. I'm not going to have a Bible verse on it or anything like that. Other than like my name and the dates I lived, uh, the only thing that's going to be on my tombstone is PFC US Army because I consider that my greatest life accomplishment. Like other than getting, other than, you know, other than um, um other than having a family is probably going to be my greatest life accomplishment.
0: I think there's a place for the writer who is just a writer in the sense that, you know, the, I told you the other, um, I told you the other piece, uh, no, I didn't tell you this, but uh, I told you that I wrote, or rather I recited the forward by G.R. Hudson for that writer's workshop that we did. Um, The other thing I did, the other thing I read, rather, is uh, Hemingway's Nobel Prize uh, acceptance speech from 1954. Um, He talks about how, you know, quoted exactly, writing at its best is a lonely life. Organizations for writers palliate the writer's loneliness, but I doubt if they ever improve his writing. He grows in public stature as he sheds in loneliness, and often his work deteriorates, for he does his work alone. And if he's a good enough writer, he must face eternity or the lack of it each day." I think it's a a possibility that when he said that, a big part of his mind was was speaking about Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald tapered off, whereas Hemingway picked up steam to the very end. He maintained that loneliness, but he also lived He experienced much of life. He was a war correspondent. He's an ambulance driver in the ambulance corps in Italy in 1917 during World War One. He lived. He didn't just write. I think there are a handful of men who can just live as writers. They can be the recluse. But I think a lot of the healthiest writers, a lot of the greatest writers, they had something on their feet that was tangible. And that had to do with the daily duty. I mean, Chekhov has that famous line, uh, what is it? Medicine is my wife, playwriting is my mistress. And... I think there's a lot of greatness in that. You know, you and I also shared a vocation in terms of bartending. Um, In the cocktail world, there's a man named Augusto Peroni, who's the head bartender at the Connaught. Very, you know, good-looking, well-dressed Italian man who has every reason in the world to be the egocentric bar maniac, but he maintains a humility of service, and he talks about we, no matter how outlandish the menus are. No matter how grand our achievements, we have a daily, daily duty of service every single day. That resonates. It wouldn't be good enough for me just to, once upon a time, I told you about this offline, but my two selfish goals in life that I had before my previous plans, my previous plans were to be a monk, but not before writing something truly foundational or even winning a Nobel Prize in literature and being a world champion fighter. Those are my two selfish goals of skill mastery. It wouldn't be enough for just the writing to be there. That would be an incomplete life. There's no actual duty there. I'm living in the ether at that point, if that's the case. I think you have that understanding. It's certainly something that I appreciate.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is true, like it is true that you know that that having only one sort of life accomplishment in terms of writing, you know, all writers feel like just because of how they are writers that they are failures because being a writer is something that only failures do, um, and even if you succeed at writing, you're still a failure because you were a fucking writer, um, and I'm I, I'm kind of I'm. I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek here. I don't I don't actually really mean this, but, you know, because the written word – you know, Shelby Foote didn't think this at all. Shelby Foote thought that the written word was the most important form of expression that human beings are capable of because um, it's the only thing that, you know, that we can really do that conveys the most with the least um, – But, you know, yeah, man, I mean, my, I've got goals outside of, outside of great writing. You know, I fucking, um, I still hope to commission in the U.S. Army. That's still a goal I have. I still hope to be financially prosperous and to have a very large family and a nice estate surrounded by, you know, many great friends who share my beliefs and values, which is why I'm excited to, um, hopefully be relocating as to as to where uh some of our friends are in the near future um but you know i mean i mean like yeah man like like holistic lives are you know what you want to live this idea of like autistically specializing in this one field that you just want to be this one thing is how fucking nerds think man you know nerds think that way you know successful people are people with multifaceted lives are people who are connecting nodes of multiple sort of ecosystems of individuals. And I mean, you know, that's, that's what writing is. Writing is seeing, writing is being the person who can see where the nodes connect, uh, writing about where the nodes connect and following each line to each different sort of specific part. That's writing. You know, you're just, you're just like commenting and rebuilding and attempting to understand the human condition, you know? agreed agreed someone
0: asked me in a q and said you could pick writing or fighting which is it you have to pick one i'm like oh fuck off I my first you know initial um is my initial uh um my initial sentiment i said you know do i which one i enjoy more fighting not close yeah
1: it's just it's just not close um i love writing. well it's like it's like it's like I'd imagine it's kind of like this, right? You know, you you, you you'd marry writing, but you wanna fuck fighting, basically. If, <laughs> if we're if we're doing it like that, if that's the metaphor we're going with. I mean <laughs> if that's the metaphor you want to go with, certainly. Uh, that's a, I, mean, um, I was a rugby player once, and so that was that was the saying, you know, you want to marry 15s, but you wanna fuck sevens when you're playing rugby. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever played rugby. No,
0: I, I people tried recruiting me in drama school, but by then I was already like a Muay Thai artist. So I was like, no, no, I have Muay Thai. I'm like, you want to go to the pub? Muay Thai? Like, oh, you you want to you want to go out to the country? Mm, no, nope. gonna go to the library and then go to Muay Thai. Like, um, and yeah, I mean, I enjoy it more. But if I had to pick one, if I'm gonna make more of an impact on people's lives, it's gonna be with writing, right? How many people are gonna watch a video of some title fight I had somewhere, right? No. You're going to read a book i wrote god willing so has the likes to it um you know we could probably go at this for quite a long time um what what's what's the what's the length of your uh of, of your
1: lucifer bar barman story is it a long one or a short one i mean it's it's a shorter one i mean if you want me to tell it we could um, um we could end on that please yeah, so I was, um, I was bartending in a spot in Arlington, which is the part of Virginia that used to be Washington, D.C., um, just right across the Potomac. Uh, so the ecosystems the exact same. Um, and, you know, it was my last night actually working at this bar, and I had just, I had just started talking to, you know, my now wife at the time, um, and um you know and i was you know i was i was finishing it up because i was moving down to where i am now uh to start another job and that was the job i ended up getting fired from in january um but you know at that time it seemed like it was all up in front of me and everything was going well and all of that um and so i was you know i was you know watching the second floor bar which is you know this place had a couple of floors but I was watching the second floor bar, which is kind of this chill sort of lounge, um, and this dude comes in. This dude comes in. He is uh, he's a uh, light skinned black dude, but like kind of off looking. He later said he was Brazilian, and I'm, that kind of makes sense because he didn't look like he didn't look like the kind of uh, black dude you see in the United States, even in southern cities. Um, you know, sat at the bar, very clean cut, very well dressed. Um, wearing some sort of like sweater or whatever, and you know, orders a Moscow Mule, and so I make him a Moscow Mule, and you know, he's, you know, he's trying to offer to buy me a whole bunch of shots and 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 like food or anything like that. Um, and the first, you know, that pol that bar had a policy, you know, you can't do anything, you know. And personally, I was I was a dude who would stick by the rules. Um, but it was my last night working there. So I'm like, screw it. So I took one, I took one shot with him that he would buy for me. And, you know, I didn't realize until after that shot who he was, but the name just started blaring in my head. Um, he had this really devilish smile, like, 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 you know, um, just this, like this unnerving sort of like unnatural charm that you felt. Um, and I did not like it one bit. And so I would, I would give him his Moscow mules and he would tip them back. And like within two gulps, they would be gone. This is like a fucking Mason jar. Um, and you know, and, um, he would, he would ask me all these sort of interesting questions. And, you know, I felt compelled to lie to him. (laughs) Um, he said, Oh, what are you doing? I told him "Yeah, asked my last night here. He's like, Oh, what are you doing here? And I said, I was moving down to Charlotte to do a finance job. I was total bullshit. I was moving elsewhere. And he said, Oh, Charlotte's a nice town. You could make a lot of money there. And he emphasized it as though he knew exactly what I, what I was doing and you know, that I was lying and all that other stuff. Um, but you know, I kind of stick to the other end of the bar, only check on them every so often when I need to. Um, I go to close his tab when he said he's ready to go. And, you know, he, um, he kind of, he kind of looked at me and, and tried to say, what is it tried to say, Hey, in, in Brazil, we have this saying, and he said something in Portuguese and he said, it's the, um, um, it's the last one. And, um, and, um, uh, I responded with, um, uh, with no thank you. And he kind of looked at me and as it's was, it was kind of like, it's kind of like a look like, all right, I'm, I'm going to leave you alone for now. But, you know, left me a $60 tip on the tab handed me, but like, and that was on top of, he, he wrapped up five dollars bills in the receipt, handed it to me and said, this is for you. And you're not supposed to keep tips. You're supposed to put them in the tip jar and they get divvied up amongst the bartenders based on hours worked and stuff like that. But I shoved them in my pocket. Um, and they physically burned me when I put them in my pocket. Um, So I pulled them out and threw them in that jar and fucking didn't touch them for the rest of the night.
0: Yeah, that sounds... In essence, pretty, pretty, pretty spot on. Yeah, accepting something from him. Is, uh yeah, no, that 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 that's pretty reminiscent, honestly. And I didn't know that. You know, I thought it was just me, to be honest. I partially thought I was crazy uh, when I was visited by by Lucifer while I was behind the bar. Um, he uh. I mean the fact the fact that it burned you first of all uh, it's the it's the acceptance of something the fact that it burned you and able to to give it back to put it in the tip jar you never look at it again. I uh, when I was leaving California last January uh, to go to Austin, I um I had the, I worked at this one place it was the best bar in the Bay Area um, and people who really know the scene would know that um i did a 12-hour shift there every sunday and three weeks in a row i had a visitor who said something and i had just come back to the faith i was on the road to being baptized in the orthodox church after a three-year you know prodigal son period after one year of very devoted inquiry and i had one former regular come in say hi it's been a while he's a gay man um and he just starts I, I noticed the effects of prayer in my life on a co-worker that i had for six months who's actually gay um but he exemplified um he exemplified qualities of a, of a christian um better than some christians and i, I caught you know i, I would catch him checking out girls too I'm like, okay what's this guy's deal this co-worker of mine. And he was struggling with addiction as well. And I saw him twice like snap, you know, after 80 days of sobriety, he's, you know, he, to 10 days away from his 90 day marker, you know, the big milestone, he relapses. I saw this happen twice. So I'm starting to pray for this guy and I'm seeing this, you know, rapidly improve. I'm I'm seeing the fruits of my prayers. Honestly, that was the only thing that I knew had changed. And I just, I would ask him, how are you doing? He's like, I just feel better. I don't know why um and so this other you know gay man came into the bar and said you know i don't pray for people i actually help them And i was like yeah you can do both which is very aggressive and i sort of shut him down at every turn the next week i had a guy come in saying who was pretty he seemed just kind of how do i put this he just kind of he just seemed like a santa cruz surf beach bum type you know, very hipster very hippie and he just said uh he just he seemed fine that he gave him a drink and he went to being more drunk and he, he starts saying you shouldn't go to Austin, you should stay here, you might miss something. Like if you leave, you'll never really be from here ever again. Like most spooky me. I was like, this is strange. Um and he left without paying for his drink. And I'm like, I don't I'm not really convinced that was a person. Um and then the final one about a week later, uh a skinny. Bald gay man with a wide-brimmed hat walks in. boots, wiry. Crow's feet on his eyes. And he comes and he sees me bartending. He's like, oh, my goodness, you can bartend. I'm like You're one of the best bartenders I've ever seen. I'm like, yeah, thanks, man. Um, uh, what can I get for you? He's like, well, I'm hiring, by the way. I'd love to give you a job. I bet you make way more money where I could hire you. And I was just like. Yeah. I'm actually getting out of here, man. So, um, what, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I was like, Oh, where are you headed? Awesome. I was like, oh, I got contacts and Austin, I can get you a job there stat. And I was like, I don't know about all this. And I was like, so yeah, do you want to drink? Like this is a dealer's choice cocktail bar. And I said, do you want to drink? Like can make you something, something off the menu, something on the menu. Um, he says, well, how about you just surprise me? I'm like, well, what base spirit man He's like the Holy spirit. I'm like, okay and i start i pick a burger and i pick a rye for a base i'm stirring and he says to me have you ever prayed to god for something and it just didn't work out and i said yeah actually and he his eyes widened as if he had me cornered and i said to him and then i realized what i was praying for wasn't the right thing to be praying for in the first place and he came back with something far greater and it just took the wind out of his sails and i saw that gap of a split second where he just sort of buckled and he says oh yeah i know exactly what you're talking about and i, I saw this miracle of light when i was trying to buy this big old poster of jesus and he showed me a picture of jesus from wayfair if you remember the Wayfair scandal Mm -hmm. Um, And I start to look up to him and he, two drinks in, he starts to get stranger and stranger and goes into some kind of maniacal laughter when I tell him like, look, I don't really want anything from you. So I'd appreciate it if you just pay your bill. And he took the glide. When I wasn't looking, he walked out with a drink and everyone, when something like that happens, everyone always expected me to deal with it. I broke up all the fights, you know, yada, yada. And I ran out and look for him and I felt the need to circle him and not go right behind him and took the drink out of his hands and he just sort of like ran away laughing. He's like, that was and viscerally, like, yeah, that could have just been a crazy person, but I'm sure you can remember the feeling where viscerally your being is just rejecting him. Like, yeah, it's just something else. Like you're not, I served wine to Mark Zuckerberg once. My being was like, nope. It's not just that I don't like you, like my being is just saying no. Like this, you're not human, you're something else. It's not a meme. Like you no, no, no.
1: You gotta wonder why. Yeah, it's like the it's like the uncanny valley and all that. You know, it just kind of it kind of just tells you when something in front of you looks human but isn't.
0: Yeah. Yeah, if we really keep our eyes peeled remain calm and don't give it any kind of white noise we can see through things plain and simple totally true well this is uh, this is fantastic i really enjoyed your book um i think it's you know i think we're entering i've mentioned this before i think we're entering the post postmodern era and i i said that i've said before in this podcast that literature would reflect that and i think you're the
1: first sign that i've seen that i'm right I hope so. I mean, uh, John David Ebert called it hyper-modernity. Um, personally, I think, I think I like new medievalism. I, I want us to leave modernity and go back to what came before, which is medievalism. Um, but I really appreciate that you had me on Mr. Dane and I'm happy to come back whenever you're willing to have me. I certainly will. And I'm very
0: much looking forward to it. Uh, I have your links in the bio. Um, so check, follow him on Twitter. Uh, Substack as well. So I'll link the Substack, uh, your Gumroad to purchase a copy of Country Squire's notebook. Uh, I highly recommend everyone listening does, um, and you know I'm hoping that physical book comes out soon.
1: Yeah, you know, on that note, before we before we dip out, um, I did just submit the master text to Antelope Hill. Um, and I asked them if they would be interested in the exclusive rights of publishing it. And so I can't promise anything yet. Um, I, my conditions were they keep the cover art, they keep the forward by T.R. Hudson and they re-edit the work and republish it in a new, new edition. Um, and if they meet those three conditions, uh, there will be a physical copy of a country squires notebook that you will be able to, purchase on uh, antelope hill uh, should they be interested in publishing me and should they meet the conditions i set forth so there's that to look out for excellent very much looking forward to that
0: paul thank you so much and to the listeners as always good night good storms god bless thank you god bless